The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Squawk Box. ECB Chief Economist Philip Lane tells CNBC exclusively volatility in U.S. Treasury yields doesn't necessarily mean big moves in Europe as the central bank marks a year since the launch of its emergency bond buying program. The fact that we responded in our March decision by stepping up the pace of purchasing is a reflection that um, we can uh, uh, decouple, if you like, the, the trend in the international bond market with the trend in the your area bond markets. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Fed Chair Jerome Powell prepare to testify before Congress facing another grilling over the country's $1.9 trillion pandemic relief bill. President Joe Biden eyes a $3 trillion infrastructure spending plan in his latest bid to boost the recovery with reports suggesting the administration will split it into two bills in a bid to win approval. China strikes back after the US, EU and UK impose sanctions over its treatment of Uyghur Muslims, calling on Brussels to correct its serious mistake. And the US National Institute of Infectious Disease says AstraZeneca may have included outdated information when announcing the results of its COVID-19 vaccine trial in the US, potentially influencing efficacy data. So a big welcome to the program at the wall this morning, because as markets fixate on rising Treasury yields, some interesting messaging coming from the European Central Bank about how it intends to keep interest rates low in European sovereigns. The chief economist, Philip Lane, has told CNBC exclusively that the central bank is launching a, quote, substantial and consistent ramp up of its emergency bond buying program as it looks to stave off those rising bond yields and keep borrowing costs down. It comes as the ECB announced it had bought more than 21 billion euros worth of bonds as part of its PEP program in the week to March 17th, its highest rate of buying in over three months. Well, Annette caught up with Philip Lane for an exclusive interview and started by asking him whether markets should start getting used to such levels of intervention from the central bank. Well, as you know, um, the weekly data are always confounded a little bit by redemptions and, you know, the week-to-week uh, special factors. But it does reflect our commitment to have a substantial increase in the pace of purchasing. I wouldn't take any one week in isolation, but of course, if you average over several weeks, you will see this substantial increase in a consistent way. If you look at the situation on the bond markets, um, why are you so concerned? Because if you deduct inflation from the nominal rates, then I guess real rates are more or less not such a problem, right? Well, we have an inflation forecast which remains quite low. So even uh, in 2023, inflation's only at 1.4 uh, in our forecast. 
And in that context, uh, essentially, uh, we, we would like to see uh, fairly low rates remaining. And in fact, if we do see expected inflation pick up, and let me emphasize what really matters with expected inflation is economy-wide, not just the, the uh, viewpoint of uh, financial traders, but we would need to see it in firms and households as well. But ideally, that, that uh, any inflation, any pickup in expected inflation, if it adds to inflation momentum, we welcome it. And uh, you know, I think uh, we you have to compare the, the nominal yields we see against the inflation forecast we have, which remains uh, pretty low at one point four at uh, two years ago, two years ahead. Yeah. Um, when we talk about inflation, the Fed clearly has opted for allowing overshooting. Um, what would be your stance? Would you follow the Fed in that respect? Well, I think, you know, that, that's an interesting debate. And as you know, we, we have a strategy review and we're still in, in the middle of that. But behind, uh, you know, what is the deeper point here? Uh, the deeper point is uh, in a world where essentially lots of central banks have a situation right now that inflation is too low, too low compared to the target. I think the universal emphasis and our emphasis has to be to make sure that monetary policy support remains in place until inflation is robustly uh, where we want it to be. We've already given that forward guidance since uh, September 19. Uh, we want inflation to robustly converge to, to our uh, target. And if you like, that, that should provide enough guidance that uh, monetary policy support will be in place until we see that robust convergence. Meanwhile, ECB President Christine Lagarde marked the one-year anniversary of the PEP program in a blog post in which she held it for providing crucial support to citizens and markets at a time when the Eurozone was facing a, quote, full-blown financial meltdown. Lagarde went on to say that the ECB remains ready to adjust its bond-buying scheme as the ongoing spread of COVID and slow speed of the vaccine rollout continue to hang over the Eurozone economy. Annette asked to Philip Lane whether stronger recovery trends in the United States could lead to a decoupling between Treasuries and Euro area bonds. This is essentially, you know, very much on our minds. And of course, the historic uh, correlation between uh, international bond yields and Euro area bond yields uh, is, is something that we can uh, re respond to. So if you like, the fact that we responded in our March decision by stepping up the pace of purchasing is a reflection that um, we can uh, uh, decouple, if you like, that the trend in the international bond market with the trend in the your area bond market. I mean, I don't say that's 100% decoupling. But, I mean, it's also the case, as you know, that the increase in yields uh, in recent times in the euro area has not been up to the same scale as in the US. And in the end, I mean, it's for us to determine, as we did in the March decision, based on a joint assessment of what's going on in terms of financing conditions, and also what's, uh, what we see in terms of the inflation outlook, that will determine how much we react in terms of the scale of asset purchasing. Your Dutch colleague um, stepped out saying that the scaling up of the purchases should only be for a certain time until, um, yeah, we see a substantial calming down perhaps in the market reaction. Would you agree? Well, I mean, I think behind the, uh, that comment, 
is uh, it's the underneath underline uh, that comment, and I think our shared view it is essentially it depends on the pandemic. I mean, of course, the program, the PEP program, is centered on the pandemic emergency, and as we've been discussing right now, there's a lot of uncertainty about uh, the coming weeks. But I've also emphasized we also think there's going to be a lot of vaccinations in, in these in these weeks and months, and uh, you know we've we've tried throughout to recognize that the uncertainty is a dominant feature. And no matter how the pandemic plays out, whether uh, it plays out with some disappointment or whether there's some uh, acceleration of good news, the, the PEP is, is, is designed to be flexible and to respond. So, uh, you know, when, when Klaas was speaking, he provided a, a conjecture about one pathway. But the more uh, overriding uh, theme, I think, is with the uncertainty about the pandemic, uh, the PEP will adjust in a flexible way to make sure that financing conditions remain favorable and in particular that they remain supportive of uh, countering the pandemic shock to inflation. That brings me directly um, to the question of uh, favorable financing conditions, because clearly there's a lot of, you know, interpretation of what that really means um, and what which parameters you are looking at. And um, perhaps you could try to explain it a bit more um, to the markets. So the European economy uh, has a mixed financial system. Uh, we know for firms and households, uh, it's bank-based. But of course, market-based funding is also very important for large corporates, for sovereigns. And so this is why uh, we do take a, a broad approach uh, where we want to look at what's going on in terms of uh, market conditions, uh, but also uh, what we see in terms of the funding conditions facing uh, uh, the customers of banks. But we did also emphasize in the March meeting that there's a special status, a special role, if you like, for the risk-free uh, uh, curve and the, the uh, sovereign uh, yields as well, because they play such an important role in the overall financing conditions of the euro area. And also, uh, it's obvious that when we think about our asset purchasing, that's where we uh, operate on. We operate on the risk-free curve and the, the sovereign yields. And that's why uh, we pay particular attention uh, when we see a significant movement in these yields, as we did over recent weeks. Uh, Philip Lane there, and the reason we're listening so closely is that Lane is seen as the, the chief architect of uh, the monetary response over the ECB as he's been crafting uh, certain policies to, to get the Eurozone out of the mess around COVID and the pandemic. A couple of points to pick up on around interest rates. I mean, the market has been very aggressively to, to start to price in some form of inflation. It was very interesting to see just how dovish he was there and his comments specifically that they would welcome some inflation momentum that their forecasts at this stage are very low. So I think that does tell a story about how challenging it is still going to be to get some level of inflation here in the Eurozone. The other points too raised around uh, what lies ahead too with any decoupling that was in the second part of his commentary when he was quizzed about uh, any decoupling in US Treasury yields and uh, Eurozone bond markets and what we've witnessed as those US Treasuries so far have marched higher dragged with it has been some of the sovereignty, particularly if you look at the Bund on some of the more upbeat days for US Treasuries. But I, I think you start to 
to look down the track a little bit, and I think a lot of other economists have too, what you've got now priced around some of the, the momentum with the, the spending package in the United States, the $1.9 trillion that was agreed recently, that will provide about 11 to 12% uh, boost to GDP this year, in contrast to the measures in uh, European countries, the $750 billion uh, recovery fund, that's thought to be adding about 6% to GDP. So you can see why we're looking at much stronger growth rates on the fiscal side, in addition to the monetary policy in the United States. And I just wonder whether we're going to see this divergence now in future and that's not just going to be around the growth rates. Perhaps it will be around bonds too, Steve. Yeah, I, I, I listened to a lot of that with care and I was very, very interested in some of the, the, the points of pride there. What was Philip Lane saying that the decoupling is a good thing or a bad thing? Because if he was saying it was a good thing because we're not seeing the uptick in rates and perhaps the increase in financing costs uh, in US T-bonds, we're not seeing that across the European curve as well. Well, surely one could argue that that's a bad thing because the US uptick in the yield curve uh, is a sign that people actually think uh, that there is growth happening in the US economy and that the policy is working on the unemployment front or on possibly at some stage the inflation front as well. And so that the curve doesn't need as much manipulation as we're seeing in Europe as well. So when they talk about decoupling uh, and hence volatility in inverted commas in the US yield curve, are we saying that's a good thing or a bad thing? The 200 basis point spread between bunds at negative 0.25 and, and trade Treasuries at past 1.75 as well. Surely that's a sign of strength in the US economy and weakness in the European plan as well. Just one more point as well. The, the, one of the reasons why, of course, we are seeing decoupling is because we are investing. Well, I say investing. I hope it's investing. The ECB is putting in via the PEP 1.85 trillion US dollars. Last week, 21.1 billion I beg pardon, euros uh, worth of bonds were bought by the ECB. Since the start of this program, 18.1 billion euros per week. What, what are we getting for the money? Are we getting growth? Are we getting structural reform? Are we getting deregulation in Europe? Are we getting some form of unemployment improvement? Are we getting, well, what is what I want to know? So one, I have questions about what the decoupling means. Two, uh, what, what are the European governments doing with this backstop in place that was originally put in by Draghi and now put in by Lagarde? Jeff knows the answers, I'm sure. Uh, well, I don't know if I know the answers, but I can um, add to the commentary here. And I think it, it is the challenge of growth, Steve, that you and Karen have pointed out, which I think is the key thing for us to focus on. And it is the thing I think that the European Central Bank is most worried about here because the market noise is around the yield curve movements. And my goodness, you know, we saw even the OAT, the 10-year French bond, dragged into positive territory in reaction to what was going on in the Treasury curve. The reason, of course, this is uh, alarming to the uh, European Central Bank and some European officials is it represents a tightening in financial conditions. And the fourth quarter of 2020 saw quite a dramatic outflow of capital from the euro area, from the eurozone. And HSBC, I think, estimated that looked like something around 500 billion euros. But at a time when the bank is concerned that credit should be available for companies that need it, is concerned that countries should be recovering from the pandemic, capital outflow 
Kosovo is not a good news story. And as uh, I'm not comparing Turkey per se with what's going on in the Eurozone, but we've already seen what's happening in Turkey because of concerns around capital outflow. And the ECB will be very aware of the potential consequences for growth and for economic activity. And the growth dilemma is even more uh, pointed, I think, because of what's happening with the management of the pandemic itself. The US lost, what, 3.5%, I guess, for full year 2020 because of the pandemic. The Eurozone lost nearly double that figure in growth terms. So it's got a lot to do to catch up with that. And even as that is happening, these actions that are being taken by the ECB are just compounding concerns about the stretching of the ECB's balance sheet and the level of debt that is being taken on by Eurozone governments here. Great if you take on debt in a crisis, if you have growth to then begin to absorb that debt. If you don't get that growth, what you end up with is an even further stretched balance sheet and the beginning of political concerns among constituent members, particularly those frugal countries in the north, who are going to start asking themselves, who is funding all this ECB largesse and when is it going to get paid back, Steve? And what is that backstop being used for growth one thing but if you're laying the foundations to become uh, a better economy broader you have structural change you're building back better there's the phrase of the moment as well Uh, but we're going to carry on this conversation throughout the show but if you want to also look at it in more depth now whilst you're watching the show i hasten to add you can uh, watch more of anetta's exclusive interview with philip lane online at cnbc.com plus we've got a great guest for you later on as well we're going to have more on this european economic recovery as well as the future of the bloc's international relations, uh, with, perhaps with the British as well, when we speak exclusively with the EU Commission's Executive Vice President, Valdis Dombrovskis. Uh, we'll give you that one in around about an hour and ten minutes' time. It's good to hear from the ever-colourful uh, Valdis Dombrovskis. Uh, we will engage with him, as Steve says, a little later on. Also, still to come, President Biden eyes a massive new infrastructure spending plan in his latest bid to boost the recovery. We'll have that story. And for more on our exclusive interview with ECB's Philip Lane, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. I'm very conscious on Scorebox that we've just talked all about monetary policy. And I think there are some of you out there who feel that we need to redress it with a big chat about fiscal. So why don't we do that now? Uh, The White House is considering a sweeping, wait for it, three trillion dollar infrastructure spending plan in a boot to uh, boost to uh, uh, the recovery. That's the bid anyway. Uh, and reduce economic inequalities. The package could be split into two parts, according to NBC News. One bill would aim to bolster manufacturing and reduce carbon emissions, whilst the other would include heavy investment in education. 
So the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said the recent $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan will support growth and potentially lead to full employment next year. That's interesting. I will come back to that. Uh, In prepared remarks ahead of her testimony to U.S. House lawmakers later today, Yellen added she's confident the foundations of the American economy will be strong when the pandemic is over. Well, back to monetary policy now, because the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, says the US economy has improved, but warned the economy and the recovery is not complete just yet. In a prepared statement ahead of a congressional hearing, uh, Powell will add the country has bounced back from the depths of the crisis more quickly than expected. Meanwhile, speaking at a BIS uh, Bank of International Settlements panel on cryptocurrencies, now Powell also said the Fed has begun early research into issuing a digital coin. Crypto assets, uh, you know, they're they're highly volatile, see Bitcoin, and therefore not really useful as a store of value, and they're not backed by anything. They're more of an asset for speculation. So they're also not particularly in use as a means of payment. It's more uh, a speculative asset that's, that's essentially a substitute for gold rather than for the dollar. To move forward on this, we would need buy-in from Congress, from the administration, from broad elements of the public. So when we haven't really begun the the job of, of that public engagement. So you can expect us to move with great care and transparency in considering a CBDC. So that's power. I just want to just mention something very quickly before I forget, because you know what it's like when you're my age. Um, Yellen said in her prepared testimony, we could potentially have full employment next year, yeah? Now, don't forget, we're not expecting interest rate hikes till the end of 2023. Anyone else want to work that one out for me? So we're not going to have the inflation, which is going to take us to a position in 2022 where we need an interest rate hike. But we are going to have full employment, which is one of the criteria for a rate hike. Anyway, I'm confused. I don't know if you are. Ojumana will discuss digital currencies, central banks and more with the BIS general manager, Augustin Carstens, and bring you that interview exclusively uh, from 700 CET. You've got to wait till tomorrow for that one, though, Karen. Uh, yes, uh, on pause. Uh, let's uh, wait to see what he has to say. I want to move on to the U.S. markets. A little bit of storytelling around what played out yesterday away from the green you saw splashed up on the three major indices. It did feel as though some of this rotation trade has run into some fatigue. And that was evidenced in what you saw in the banking stocks. A pullback in the S&P Bank ETF down 3.5% in contrast again to some of the support shown for the technology names and big moving stocks for the Dow Microsoft for the S&P and for the Nasdaq, it was Apple. So big technology names that have played uh, a fairly significant role in the buyback uh, that you've seen on markets, uh, money going back into technology initially, as we saw the bounce in markets. So just worth noting the Nasdaq, again, an outperformer, 1.2% pop. Tesla, one stock to watch, of course, too, in the trade. But uh, what we're talking about uh, around this date, too, is that this is the uh, date 12 months on that marks the trough and the cycle. That real low point is we fell very aggressively on the back of the pandemic news and the realisation about just how difficult the economy would be as a result of the pandemic. Let's take a look at what we've had on some of the better performers because energy has been a real stand-up performer in this uh, recovery phase. You can see 102% to the upside. It's doubled along with materials part of the market. In contrast, though, right at the other end has been consumer staples. The recovery has been nowhere near that 102%. You can see 36% bounce back. So huge disparity in the recovery trade that we have witnessed. Also, uh, one of the laggards, very similar tune to the consumer staples, is utilities as well. You might be saying to me, what about technology? Technology has been a huge trade 
on the back of pand- the pandemic. Let's take a look at the Nasdaq because it's been hard to get the, the entire basket of technology stocks together. If you look at individual components uh, around communications, for instance, don't forget the technology basket was split out. But this is a look at the Nasdaq. And you can see a very similar tune to that 100 plus percent that we saw in the NG basket, 94 plus percent or 95 odd percent. But even stronger gains too. If you look at the ARK Innovation Fund, the big one that we talk about uh, fairly often, that's up 122 percent. So actually outpacing the energy space uh, in terms of the performance. Actually, I should say 220%, even stronger than that. And uh, the S&P retail ETF, another huge uh, component that's rallied hard, has been up 234%. So there have been much stronger performers than some of these uh, that you're seeing just on the overall NASDAQ. Uh, let's get to some commentary, though. As Oak Tree Capital co-founder Howard Marks has told CNBC, the recovery will be strong thanks in part to an uptick in income and savings. He also said Washington has provided enough support to businesses struggling during the pandemic. Any company that has uh, uh, difficulties in this environment deserves to be uh, distressed. Uh, you know, the, 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 the bailouts have been generous. The liquidity has been rife. Uh, and... Uh, you know, the default rate in 2020, uh, which was predicted to get into middle uh, teens, uh, didn't even reach half that. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.